Welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. But I went onto that stage just a few days later, and a general who's a fantastic general actually said to me, Sir, I've been on the battlefield. Men have gone down on my left and on my right. I stood on hills where soldiers were killed. But I believe the bravest thing I've ever seen was the night you went onto that stage with Hillary Clinton after what happened. And then that woman asked you the first question about it. And I said, locker room talk. It's locker room talk. What the hell? What are you talking? Locker room talk. <laughs> that was not a great. Well, that was Donald Trump at an event in New York City last weekend. You always know when Trump is lying when he says, they said to me, sir, sir is like, that's the tell. You just know it's completely made up. But uh, I'm 64, and I was really shocked to learn that uh, the bravest thing that a military general thinks ever happened in this country was Donald Trump debating Hillary Clinton. True dat. True dat. I mean, there's no more brave <laughs> an act than debating a woman on a stage. I mean, why are we even talking still about the guys who stormed the beaches of Normandy when Donald Trump debated Hillary Clinton? There should be a holiday for Donald Trump, like Donald Trump Debate Day. Forget Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Trump Debate Day. Well, if he gets elected, there will be, uh, it'll be January 6th. Yeah. It'll be Trump Day. We could have a statues made of him and Hillary on stage. Ooh. Sure. Yeah, like her, him standing like a foot behind her. Remember when he used to <laughs> yes. stalk her on the stage? Like She, she should have just turned around and said, get the fuck away from me. Anyway, we're going to talk with uh, Ellie Honig shortly about all things Donald Trump. It was a very busy judicial week for Trump and also for his little mini-me, Rudy Giuliani. But first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's some feedback we received this week. On our conversation with Congressman Richie Torres, Jill Kaplan writes, Just finished listening to the Richie Torres interview. Thought it was great. Wished it was longer. As a middle-aged Jewish girl originally from the Bronx, I know the ties between the black and Jewish community run deep. Marcella writes, Great conversation. I really admire his clarity and composure. Karen Schnellwar writes, Just, he's absolutely amazing. Our Dean Phillips conversation got some feedback. Tony Feely writes, My husband and I are elderly and are two of those independents that Dean Phillips is talking about who voted for Biden last time and are not going with Biden again this time. I think it is time for Joe to pass the torch to a younger generation. Zach Gibson writes, But why Dean? I keep seeing him talk about how Biden is the answer. Okay, then why is Dean the answer? Zach, did you listen to the episode? <laughs> You responded to the episode. <laughs> I think Congressman Phillips did a pretty good job explaining why he's running and uh, what he thinks about Biden and whether or not I agree with it. I think he did a great job. Anyway, let's get to our two big things. First of which, the impeachment inquiry to bring down the Biden crime family. Oh, Joe Biden, all the crimes he's committed. Let's see. Let's count them. There's... um. Well, there's, oh, and, but what about, nah, he didn't commit a crime. I mean, he's a brilliant criminal mind. This is 
the true reason he rides Amtrak all the time, it's so that he can't get, you know, the police on top of him with wiretaps. Yeah. He does all of his meetings on Amtrak. Yeah. And look, the other thing too is he's he really is a genius because he was afraid that the Justice Department was going to come after his son, Hunter, and indict him. So he indicted him to protect him. That's the theory circulating in Republican circles right now, that Biden and the Democrats indicted Hunter to protect him. It seems perfectly reasonable coming from a party that, you know, started with the John Birch Society and now we're at Pizzagate. So why not? I mean, when you listen to them talk, it's like, are they stupid? Do they think their constituents are stupid? Bing. Both. <laughs> yes. But like, honestly, I saw that yesterday and it's like, I think Comer said it. And I was like, really? They, they indicted him to protect him. That makes I, no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. But if you say it enough times. It's, it's true. It's true. And you're watching, you watch these guys, like Jim Jordan, he's like, he's so excited. You he know? took his jacket off, that's all I can say. And none of them have any answers. Like, you, I've seen interviews with Nancy Mace, I've seen interviews with um, Jordan, I've seen interviews with Comer, um, uh, interviews with uh, Grassley. You, you ask them a question, like, what is the evidence? What evidence do you have? And they're like, well, as we're hoping that this inquiry is going to uncover the... No, that's not how it works. It's not, you don't, like a solution in, in search of the problem. That's what's happening here. It's like, what did uh, Jamie Raskin say? Most uh, crimes are whodunits. This is a what is it. <laughs> exactly. And so the vote for the impeachment inquiry went straight down party lines. All Democrats voted against it. Uh, all Republicans voted for it. There's no evidence of anything. I mean, they've been at this for 11 months and... Certainly no evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, which is what impeachment grounds are supposed to be. Um, so, but this is the age we're, we're living in, toxic tribalism, where something as so, so precious and delicate as impeachment, which the founding fathers intended to be reserved for the, the highest crimes and misdemeanors, is now used as just a political weapon. It's Benghazi 2.0. It's simply a distraction to diminish voter intensity on Biden. And unfortunately, I think it may work. Mm -hmm. And they're they're saying the quiet parts out loud. I don't know if you caught this guy, uh, Congressman Troy Nels, who was walking away from the Capitol yesterday. And a reporter said, what are you hoping to gain from an impeachment inquiry? <laughs> and he turns around and he laughs and he goes, all I can say is Trump 24, baby. Yeah. Literally. Yep. This is what he said. We'll give him points for being honest. Yes, agree. <laughs> <laughs> this is also where we are today, where the three of us, bleeding heart liberals, sitting in a room going, you know, the man was honest. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give him points for honesty. It doesn't happen very often. No, it doesn't. Um, James Comer made Freud so proud yesterday when he let the slip of the century out. He was like, this has been the most transparent political, uh, uh, I mean, congressional investigation since huh. I've been in Congress. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, they want this because it just gives them better legal standing to demand all the documents and all the shit they want from the White House. They, they now have cover. They have legal cover to be bigger douchebags. I mean, that's really all it is. But this is not making swing voters happy. All the polling and uh, man-on-the-street interviews, moderate Republicans, independents are like, 
it's just more of the same shit we don't want. I always say a year in politics is a lifetime and there's so much that's going to be taking place in the next 12 months. But when you think about abortion, what's going on in Texas, you think about this impeachment inquiry and all the other crap the Republicans have done and are continuing to do in the House, it's hard to imagine how they're going to gain any traction. Putting aside Trump, because he's an anomaly, we can debate for hours whether he's going to get the nomination and or win. But with Republicans, in terms of capturing the Senate, keeping the House, getting a bigger majority in the House, how would that even ever happen, given they're literally just shooting themselves in the foot every day? I mean, I wish we had 12 months, but really we actually have about 10, 10 months. And the polls aren't looking great right now. And I know they're a snapshot in time, but that time is fast approaching. Yeah, well, just on the way into the studio this morning, I was listening to, I don't know, CNN or MSNBC or OAN. I can't remember. I just... (laughs) They're all the same. They're all the same. And someone was saying how we're kind of going to get a sense of a lot in 40 days. Because in 40 days is Iowa and New Hampshire. And if Trump, as predicted, wins both of those handily, it's pretty much over for the Republicans. And then, so we're going to know soon if it's truly going to be Trump against Biden. And then and then the game changes in a way. Mm-hmm. The campaign changes, mm-hmm. the attacks change, putting aside all his personal shit that he's dealing with. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that things will change very much because I think the presumptive nominee is Trump now. And Trump's running as if he has no competition, which isn't, from a political standpoint, a bad idea because it isn't hurting him. He has, hasn't gone to a single debate. And by the, I don't know, what are we up to, the third or fourth? Republican debate. I can't, I, neither, I don't think anyone in this room watched the last two more than five minutes. The last one was great. I think the, the rent's too damn high guy, he was awesome. <laughs> yes. He was, that guy was, he killed. He totally killed. What I also heard was John King on CNN interviewing some Iowa caucusers who previously voted for Trump, who were now really tired of Trump and the toxicity. So you never know. I mean, you never know. You never know. And I- I'm of two minds. I think I'm more afraid if Nikki Haley somehow ekes it out, that'll energize the Republicans to actually come out and vote for congressional folks. That would be scary. I don't think Trump will energize his base the same way on the down ballot in 2024. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the next 40 days for Nikki Haley could be incredible, you know? But there's a problem there with consolidation. Until, you know, we've been talking about it on this podcast since we started that as long as there's 25 people in the race the numbers work for trump they don't work for the others mm-hmm. but if if christie drops out and desantis drops out but not, who they're not none of these people are going to drop out before iowa and new hampshire so Vivek. people who run for president <laughs> don't have small egos so we're going to save some of our uh, most of our trump talk for ellie honig so why don't we get to our winners and losers My loser, the U.S.'s largest credit union. Black applicants to Naval Federal were more than twice as likely to be denied as white applicants, even when more than a dozen different variables, including income, were the same. My winner, a possible Democratic House majority. Top court clears path for Democrats to redraw House map in New York. The ruling could allow Democrats to tilt anywhere from two to six GOP-held seats leftward. My winner are mother and daughter election workers, Ruby and Shay. 
because they're about to completely bankrupt Rudy Giuliani. My loser is actually Google. They lost a major antitrust lawsuit from Epic Games, and I think this is an enormous story because it could affect Apple in the future, and it definitely is going to affect Google. Well, Maddie clearly was in my head because he stole my winner. <laughs> I agree. Ruby Freeman, Shamos are about to have a fucking truck backed up to both of their houses with some serious Rudy Giuliani money. Uh, my loser, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who continues to be hell-bent on criminalizing abortion care. This brings us to our weekly rant. It's time for a serious, realistic, nonpartisan assessment of Bidenomics. Because if you listen to Republicans, you'd think America was on the verge of another Great Depression. It's just the opposite, quite frankly. The American economy is the strongest it's been in modern history. We are currently experiencing full employment, explosive growth, and skyrocketing financial markets. The economy is currently growing at a 5.7% pace. There's record job growth. 14 million new jobs have been created under Biden. The unemployment rate, currently 3.7%, has been below 4% for 21 months in a row the longest stretch in more than 50 years. Inflation has fallen 60% to 3.1%. Wages are outpacing inflation. Mortgage interest rates have fallen below 7%. Gas is under $3 a gallon in many parts of the country. Consumer confidence is up over 100. Construction spending and overall manufacturing is booming. The travel and leisure retail industries are thriving. Housing is strong, and for those invested in stocks, mutual funds, 401ks, etc., the market just reached a new record all-time high. A market, by the way, which Donald Trump predicted would crash if Joe Biden became president. No matter how you slice it, Bidenomics is an unprecedented success, especially if you factor in the leadership from the Fed and Chairman Jay Powell to bring down inflation amid surging job growth while avoiding recession. That's almost unheard of, and it's been done. And let's not forget, all of this has been achieved after pulling the economy out of near recession from COVID. Are prices too high? Yes. Are young people and non-college working class Americans in desperate need of more affordable housing? Absolutely. And the Biden administration needs to speak to those folks and address these lingering economic challenges, or it may find itself next year on the outside looking in. But that does not negate the fact that the economy is on fire and our economy is the strongest in the world. And facts matter. Bidenomics works. All right, let's get to Ellie Honig. Ellie is an attorney and CNN senior legal analyst and the best-selling author of Hatchet Man and the recently released Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. He's a former assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. And Ellie also hosts podcasts and writes for Cafe and Vox Media. Ellie, welcome to the back room. Great to be with you, Andy. Always, uh, always fun to talk to you. You know, so much has happened just in this week, which is usually sort of like a semi-vacation coming up on vacation week. I'll give you a little like CNN behind the scenes here. So for the New Year's Day show, the morning show, 6 to 9 a.m. January 1st, they sometimes will pre-tape some of those segments because, you know, it's hard to get people up that early on New Year's Day. So they had me doing a couple segments on, like, 
look ahead to the year 2024 in legal news, you know, with the magic wall. So we taped them earlier this week. And like two days later, we were like, we have to redo these because right. the entire landscape sort of changed the, all the scheduling, all that stuff changed like within two days. So I know it's, it's, uh, we're going to retape them. It's moving like a speeding train. Uh, yeah. Before we get into all the Trump stuff, a couple of things I want to say. One is I'm thrilled to announce that uh, your bathrobe, your five timers bathrobe oh. is in process. Oh my gosh! You got a bathrobe coming, even though this is I number six. It. You should be able to add to it. Like if you're if you get your varsity letter and then you get another season, they give you a pin that you can add to it. We'll do that. Well, you might get a ten timer soon, so who knows? Oh my gosh! Uh, if there really is a bathrobe, I will wear it with pride, and I will post a picture of myself wearing it. <laughs> so, uh, so, and then the second thing I'm going to ask you before we actually get into the substantive Trump stuff: Are you buying your little piece of Trump suit? <laughs> I saw that. You know, it's like the way they sell baseball cards now, right? Like. You can buy they'll they'll take like a Ken Griffey Jr. jersey, and that, how am I dating myself here? And and, and cut it up into a hundred pieces and put like a little swath in each one. I kind of thought, well, okay, look, hey, the man's all about marketing. We know that, right? He's yeah, all, I guess what is it? A suit he wore at some specific time or something? What? His his arrest oh, and his mugshot. mugshot in Georgia. Like that's something I mean, to be proud of, right? Listen, I got to give the guy credit. Like, way to make the best of a bad situation. Right? Yeah, but I mean, as a lawyer, I'm sure yeah. you can appreciate the fine print. Did you read the fine print on this stuff? No. What does it say? This may not be the actual suit or something like that. Pretty much says, and I'm paraphrasing, but it that's pretty classic. much says yeah. nothing you actually buy may be delivered. I mean, that's literally <laughs> the gist of it. And because it, because it. number one, in order to get the little piece of the suit, you have to buy forty seven. Yep. Of his NFT cards. Oh my God. Each of which okay. is $99. So you have to spend I, almost $5,000 to get the oh little piece. God. But here's the catch the, the yeah. fine print says, in their total discretion, they have every right to substitute out anything with just like some other NFT card. But you also can win Ken Griffey. a dinner with Donald. You can buy oh, a yeah. dinner with Donald. But then the fine print says, but he actually may not show up. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, well, I mean, isn't that amazing? Deal. I was for a second, I was like, why forty seven? But I guess it's because if he wins, he'll become the forty seventh president. Is that right? If you get two terms, or do you get like what was he? He was forty five, right? So if he should win, would he be forty five and forty seven, or is he still the forty fifth? God, it's so uh, it's so confusing. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about Trump. I want to ask you a macro question before you get into some of the micro stuff of the week. Yeah. Sitting here today, are you changing your predictions, your assessments, where you think Trump's yeah. liability is, what his exposure is, and where he's headed? It's different. I wouldn't say it's so different, but it is always evolving. I mean, you know, it's like anything else. As we get more and more information, as we get closer and closer to the event, or maybe farther from the event, as it so happens. Um, yeah, you, you know, you have to, I, I think you do have to remain flexible and, and I've changed my view of what is more or less likely to happen. But I think the big takeaway is now we, or Jack Smith to be more specific, or prosecutors to be more specific, are really starting to feel that time crunch because we're moments away from 2024. There's basically this cutoff of, you know, end of summer, you're not realistically going to have a trial going. And all of a sudden you have these four trials and they're all sort of not going to fit. I don't think more, I think you and I have talked about, it, I don't think more than one or two is going to fit. Mm -hmm. But now you're having delays and complications even within those cases. And we're starting to see the backwards drift on the calendar, which I think is, if I'm Trump's lawyers right now, and my goal is to delay, I'm pretty happy with the way this week has played out. 
Mm -hmm. Well, help unpack that for me and the listeners, because I'm a guy who watches a lot of TV news. I read a lot. I feel like I understand a lot. And I got to say, after like the last week, my head is spinning. And it's it's, too much. It's becoming hard to understand not just what went down, but how it all connects and impacts everything else. And you just started to allude to that in terms of the overall scheduling. It seems like this week, somehow the edge tilted back a little to Trump. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think Trump had a a good week. I do think that's fair and accurate. But look, I'm not saying it's over. I'm not saying Trump's going to completely skate. I, I just let, let's so let's break it down. There's there's two things that happened this week that are separate, but are sort of getting clustered together. Do you want me to sort of sure, give yeah, one yeah, at a time? Absolutely. Yeah. So the first thing, Donald Trump has argued that he cannot be prosecuted by Jack Smith for the January 6th case because he has federal immunity. The principle here is okay, let, when it comes to immunity, Trump's argument is I can't be prosecuted because what I did was within my job as president. Now there's things we know, things we don't know. What we do know is there is such thing as civil immunity for federal officials or former federal officials. So if somebody were to sue Donald Trump for something he did related to the office, for signing a piece of legislation, for vetoing, Mm -hmm. for issuing an executive order, that would be thrown out because he can't sue if it has to do with the job. But if Donald Trump, while he was president, to use the Bill Clinton, Paula Jones example, that's a perfect example. Uh, Well, that's a little bit of a different case. Let, Let me pause. If Donald Trump, while he was president, got in a fight and punched somebody or shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, to use one of his examples, that would have nothing to do with the presidency. He could be sued for that. Okay. What we don't know is, is there criminal immunity? Can you be immune from a prosecution? And if so, was Trump's conduct within his job as president? Now, he made this argument to the district court. He lost. Judge Chutkin said, no, you're not immune. Yeah, this case proceeds. So Trump's next move then would be to appeal to the Court of Appeals, the middle layer, the middle of three layers Mm -hmm. in the federal system. What Jack Smith did this week, and I think it was a smart move and I think it was a necessary move, he went right to the Supreme Court. He said, okay, Supreme Court, I want you to take this case directly. We need to skip that middleman, the Court of Appeals, and you should take this case directly. Now, this is what we call direct review. It is a thing that exists. It is a, a known procedure. It's used somewhat rarely where the Supreme Court will say, forget about the middle court of appeals. We're going to take the case right from the trial court. It actually was not used for about a 15-year stretch at all. It was never used from, I think, 2004 to 2019. But in the last four years since the Supreme Court, uh, I guess, has reached its sort of modern iteration, they've granted direct review 19 times in the last four years. So they're using it much more frequently. Just to give you a couple examples where you would remember, they use it to review the Joe Biden student debt relief plan. They mm-hmm. skipped the middle layer. They took it themselves. There's a couple of immigration issues. Um, so, and other cases that really we haven't even talked about or heard of much in the media. So I think it's likely that the Supreme Court will do this here. Um, Trump actually has to put in his brief on Wednesday. I think Trump's going to, he's going to want to delay. I think Trump's going to say no Supreme Court, which is odd because he should want the Supreme Court to take it, but right. he wants delay more. Right. And so I think he's going to say, no, Supreme Court, let it go through the Court of Appeals. Let's see what they do. I'm entitled to my full process, and then you can take it. I think the court's going to take it. But here's here's the sort of practical impact of that. Even if the Supreme Court agrees with Jack Smith and says, okay, we'll take this case directly from the district court. And even if the Supreme Court sort of super expedites this, we're not going to have a ruling from the Supreme Court until February. Let's ballpark it at February. And Judge Chutkin, 
Meanwhile, the district court judge mm -hmm. issued a ruling this week correctly. I don't think she wants to, but she understands the law requires this. She can't do anything. Right. She can't say, well, while everything's going through the court of appeals, that's great, but we're going to continue to get ready for trial. I'm going to continue to add hearings and we'll do motions and we'll do discovery. She is not allowed to do that. And she correctly issued a ruling this week. You can almost feel her in the ruling being like, I hate this, but I have right. to. And that's her saying, I no longer have jurisdiction while the, exactly. the court the court of appeals is is reviewing this. Exactly. Uh, or and the Supreme Court is reviewing it. Yeah, well, whatever, both the appellate right. courts. And, and both Jack Smith and DOJ actually agreed that she, that was the necessary move. She actually did say, I still get to enforce the gag order. Right. So if you start spouting off, which is probably correct also. But so the problem is, let's say Supreme Court may get expedites. Let's say they obviously if they rule for Trump, the case is over. But let's say they rule against Trump, which I think is the, the more substantially more likely outcome. Now, here we are. It's February. You're not going to be able to get from mid-February, early February, you're not going to be able to get ready for a trial March 4th, that's the current date, mm -hmm. in three weeks. There's just going to be too many motions, too many discovery disputes. Like It was already, I think, actually an unfairly tight timeline. Now you just, there's too many things you have to do before a trial. There's too much housekeeping you have to do. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's off, but that means the March 4th trial date to me is all but doomed. Now, they can move it back. The judge could maybe move it to, I don't know, April, May. Um, but now you're bumping into the Mar-a-Lago trial, which is in May. Um, one of those would have to give way at that point. So you're seeing the sort of chain reaction. When you say give effect. way, what does that mean? Uh, judges and judges and prosecutors coordinate. On, there's nothing wrong with mm -hmm. it. So like if you have conflicted, and we already have this situation because Jack Smith's case is scheduled for March. So is Alvin Bragg's hush money case later in March. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to give here. And so judges will call each other. Prosecutors will say, Your Honor, we have this same defendant. He has two trials that are going to overlap. You know, we suggest this one should go first. Judges will call each other and go, hey, we got the same defendant. Looks like our trials are either overlapping or on top of right next to each other. You know, usually the feds get precedence. Usually states will go, go ahead, you guys do it first. Alvin Bragg has actually signaled publicly, as has the judge in that case, that they, they will yield to the so just a, about, about so, a delay that's really all it means yeah about mm -hmm. a schedule it's a mm -hmm. scheduling thing yeah so exactly. you mentioned before that in your opinion it was a smart move by jack smith to make this request to the supreme yep. court why why is that if his goal is to try this case before the election which it obviously is mm -hmm. because the alternative is let it go through the normal process this would take i mean this could that could take a year i mean if if nothing's expedited in a normal case trump would next go to the court of appeals the, the, the time it takes to set a schedule for both sides to do their briefs, for the case to be argued, and then the judges to issue a decision, minimum four or six months. And then if Trump loses that, he can ask for what's called en banc review. It's like a Latin, I don't right. know if it's French or Latin or whatever. The full Meaning, court. right, they would probably deny that, but mm -hmm. they could grant that. But that would take another couple of weeks at least mm -hmm. to go through that. And then you're in the Supreme Court, which again, if not expedited, would take many, many more months. I mean, if, if Jack Smith didn't do this, this case would be held up, even if they expedited it, you'd be held up till the summer at least. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's Jack Smith's only real chance to keep this case on track for anything like a viable mid to late spring trial date. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before something interesting, which I think is the essence of the entire Trump defense from the get-go, which is delay. And I know you're not a psychiatrist or you don't have a crystal ball and it's hard to get in the minds of the heads of the Supreme Court justices. Under normal circumstances, someone who publicly swears all the time that he's innocent and it's a witch yeah. hunt, at the same time, 
he doesn't want to testify anywhere and wants to push out the, his day in court as far yeah. as humanly possible. Would the Supreme Court factor that kind of thing in like, you know, I know, Mr. Trump, you want to slow it down and go through the, the system. But if you really are innocent and you really believe you need your day in court, then we yeah. have to grant Jack Smith this request because it brings everybody to the table ASAP and innocence or guilt yeah. is proven. I think the Supreme Court is obviously cognizant of the election date, and I, I think they will understand that that's the reason why there's some need for timely resolution. I mean, certainly the three liberal justices will be more than on board with that, but I think they understand the sort of bigger picture here. But I will say, you know, I do want to push back a little bit. I think we need to be a little careful about reflexively, like, eye-rolling every time, you know, saying, oh, all Trump wants to do is delay, delay. I, of course mm -hmm. he does. But every defendant, first of all, wants to, 99% of the defendants, it's in their interest to slow it down to delay. Things can happen. Evidence can disappear. People, witnesses can, can you know, go south. They can die. Virtually every defendant wants to delay. But also, like, we should, some of the stuff Trump's lawyers are doing, I, I guess you could probably fairly qualify as frivolous or a stunt. But this is not. I mean, any lawyer, you can find me the most liberal, you know, Trump-hating lawyer out there, they would have to admit they would bring this immunity motion. They absolutely would. It, it, it's like I said, it's it's not I don't think Trump has a better than 50 percent chance to prevail, but he has a better than 10 percent chance to prevail. So these the motions he's been bringing in federal court are not ridiculous at all. And by the way, every defense lawyer on the planet would have a tantrum rightly if they were made to go to trial in a case with 13 million documents and 13 million pages of documents in discovery, if they were given a trial date seven months out like Trump was, mm -hmm. defense lawyers would be apoplectic. Every Find your most liberal friend who's a defense lawyer, and there's a lot of them we know in common, and you, you get one half a beer in them and they will admit that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I do think, yes, Trump is trying to delay, of course. Um, and yes, it's a, it's an extraordinary circumstance because we all know that if he delays past the election and wins, right. these cases are effectively toast. Mm -hmm. So it's unusual. But I wouldn't necessarily ascribe bad faith to that effort. So we have two questions. One is, will the court hear this case? Uh, yep. And how will they eventually rule? So you yep. think they will hear it, but do you yep. have any sense think... of how they will rule? And if it doesn't go Jack Smith's way... What yep. what happens then? So they will. I believe they will hear it. I believe they will expedite it. You know, we've all been playing the parlor game in these quarters about like, oh, now how are they going to rule? Because let me just give you the stakes here. If Trump wins, if if Jack Smith wins on this, we're back to the status quo. We have this indictment in place. Right. Although the second development we'll talk about in a minute may complicate that. If Trump wins, this case is over. It's out. And so too is Fonnie Will. I mean, almost certainly Fonnie Willis is. Yeah, that one's state federal, but that the principle here isn't state federal. The principle here. Is, is he immune? Was this, first of all, is there criminal immunity? And was Trump within his job in connection with what he's charged with, with trying to steal the election? Mm -hmm. If the Supreme Court says, yes, he's immune in the federal case, funny, two of the four cases will be essentially out the window, one for sure, and the other one almost certainly. So that's how high the stakes are here. Now, let's do the sort of part of the game about how this is going to play out. I am 100% confident that all three liberal justices, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, will be against Trump. There's a 0% chance any of the three of them goes, yeah, throw out the indictment, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that's an easy conclusion. Mm -hmm. I think it's likely that Thomas and Alito will be in Trump's corner, not because necessarily they love Trump or hate Trump, but they've already, like, there was a somewhat similar issue where Trump argued that he was immune from a subpoena three years ago. 
And he lost that one seven to two. He should have lost it nine zero, but he lost that one seven to two. But the two who were still with him said he shouldn't have to answer the subpoena. Where Should, shouldn't and Thomas so have to recuse? Well, he should, but he's not going to. He mm-hmm. didn't, and he's not going to. I mean, he should because of his wife's connection to all mm-hmm. this. Um, I mean, that's an easy, yeah. But, it, you know, no, as we know, no one can force him. So you're going to have three in this corner, two in this corner. That leaves us with Gorsuch, Rob, Roberts, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. If mm-hmm. three of the four of them go Trump's way, he'll win. I don't know, though. I mean, I, I, if I had to handicap it, like I said, I stand by what I said before. I think, I think Trump has... Less than a 50, I'm giving you sort of a broad range here. I think he has less than a 50% chance of winning on this, but better than a 10% chance of winning on this. Um, and you, and if you're, you know, I, I'll anticipate your follow-up, which is like, how could stealing an election be part of the job of a president? Mm-hmm. That's certainly the way Jack Smith characterizes it. The way Trump's team, and I think the better characterization, the way Trump's team characterizes it is, look, the president does have some oversight responsibility when it comes to elections. The states administer their own elections, but there is a role for the federal executive branch. You have... The FEC is part of the executive federal election commission is part of the executive branch. DOJ has an election branch within it. DHS does too. And if Trump was, you know, what he was doing, making calls, connecting officials, coordinating is the kind of thing that a president does. And there actually is some case law in similar scenarios that says it doesn't, it's not for the courts to argue, was the public official acting wisely or unwisely? What were his motives, good or bad? It's just, was it like, not physically, but, you know, in the White House or was it like out on the streets? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's even some case law that says, you know, anything a president does, you can't just say, well, he was acting as a candidate, not a, not a president, because everything a president does inherently is political and has, especially first um, first term presidents are always sort of trying to get reelected with everything they do. Um, again, I, so so we need to watch this one because the results of it are going to be enormous. You know, the impact of the result is going to be huge. I think the status quo will hold. You know, you have to. What you have to do though is identify two of those conservative justices who are going to swing over to the liberals. I think Roberts is a good candidate for that. He doesn't like to make massive, precipitous, um, divisive rulings. You know, Kavanaugh actually has flipped over with the liberals from mm-hmm. time to time. So has Barrett. So has Gorsuch. Um, if anything, actually, the truth is the conservatives have been more willing to flip over and join and you know, signed onto a liberal outcome than the opposite. Um, but, you know, it, I, I, I don't want to make any more specific prediction than that. Mm-hmm. What about Trump's defense that uh, of double jeopardy, that prosecuting him oh, for this yeah. Is, yeah. is double jeopardy because he was impeached already for it? Yeah. Part B of this argument. That one is a ridiculous and an automatic loser. I mean, this is, you know, it's the... How can you say it's double jeopardy? He's the impeachment trial in the, is not a criminal trial. Right. It's it's a it's a we saw it. It's a quasi political you know shamish trial, but it's just it's just procedurally not a criminal trial. So he's got nothing there. You know this is like a strategic thing that I was always big on. Lawyers love to just throw in all their arguments. Like yep. you know oh we we believe we're correct for nine reasons. I mean sometimes it can be helpful to make multiple arguments or say well a our argument is a but even if a doesn't win we still have b. But like if if your argument A is decent, half decent, as I think Trump's is, and your argument B is ridiculous, just leave out argument B. It it, it undermines your credibility. It doesn't help you. He has a zero point zero percent. But isn't the, stra- but the, isn't the strategy uh, the strategy there? Throw up nine things because we really only want one. And, yeah, and, and the thinking is the court will go. Letters. All right, but we won't give them these eight, but we'll give them yeah. the one. 
that 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 I guess those are the two ways of looking at it. I mean, it also there may be some red meat there just for the for the base in like, well, the the Senate acquitted him. How could he? You know, I mean, but I, I don't even think people in in who who are just sort of automatically loyal to Trump would, would be able to say that with a straight face. That are that argument's mm-hmm. preposterous. So my last question on Trump with Jack Smith petitioning the court this way, is it indicative that with the stakes so high, he's got an yep. ironclad case that he can't well, lose, in his uh, mind at least. I don't quite see it that way. I mean, look, the fact that Jack Smith brought this case, I mean, if he's a good ethical prosecutor, which I have every reason to believe he is, you don't bring a case unless you believe, unless you are confident you can stand up in front of a jury and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. If you don't believe that, you shouldn't be, and you don't, if you're you know, a, 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 an ethical prosecutor, you don't bring a case and go, I don't know, I guess it's all right, we'll see what happens. Um, I, I think he has a good case. You know, he's he's applying. He's in an unusual situation. This has never happened before, and there's no law that sort of fits it like a glove, like the way in Mar-a-Lago. It's uh, you know, those charges fit very neatly and and easily here. What what it does show me for sure, Jack Smith 100% is aware of the election and 100% wants to try this before the election. Although I would note, he's not willing to acknowledge that. He will. You will never hear Jack Smith say the e word. He will never say. Mm-hmm. The election, nor will Judge Chutkin. They always use sort of these vague pronouncements about the need for timely resolution and and all that. And and the reason for that is because of what would happen if Jack Smith said, "Well, judge justices, judges, we need to try this before the election." Donald Trump would go, "See, I'm right. right. He wants to do this before the election." And, right. and and the truth of the matter is, Jack Smith is being a little disingenuous here because obviously. He wants to try this before the election because obviously he wants to hang a, a conviction on Trump before the election, mm-hmm. but he won't. But he won't acknowledge it because he knows it's wrong to acknowledge it. You're not supposed to be taking things. Well, the like optics that into of account that would as, be as a prosecutor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the optics would be horrible. So he's trying to thread a needle here, mm-hmm. which, if you think about, you know, for two seconds, obvi- you know, he obviously knows what the stakes are. So, um, but yeah, I do think he's quite confident in his case. I think he wants to try his case. Um, especially in D.C. I mean, he's going to have a great jury pool in D.C. I actually, I think we've talked about this before. The, the strange thing here is I think the Florida case, the Mar-a-Lago case, is a way stronger case in terms of the evidence and the fit of the evidence to the, the charges. Um, but the jury pool's the opposite. The jury pool's way better in D.C. I mean, Florida, you know, you're going to have four, five, six, seven Trump voters on that jury, including people who are like probably big fans of his. Mm-hmm. D.C., you're going to have, I mean, 95% of D.C. voted against him in 2020. So, yeah. um if I'm Jack Smith and I had to choose, I would, and clearly he seems to have made this choice. He wants to try January 6th first. Um, it's a more important case. It's more fundamental to our democracy. And he has, frankly, has a better chance of winning. Mm-hmm. So as we sit here, we're literally on Rudy watch um, <laughs> in the defamation trial. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss have trucks that have been backed up to their homes waiting <laughs> to unload. What do you think is going to come out of those trucks? Well, this? The sad reality is probably a big number on paper, but not a lot of dollar bills because Rudy just doesn't. He's going to owe so many people so much. He already owe his lawyer or former lawyers already suing him for fees. I mean, this is going to be I, I feel confident saying this will be an eight figure verdict in, in you know, over 10 million dollars when you add it all up. Rudy already owes his lawyer. Not millions of dollars, but some amount. He's got pending civil suits from Dominion and Smartmatic, one of them seeking one point three billion dollars. Like the problem is. He's going to his assets are just going to be complete. Everyone's going to have to share whatever little assets he has. Um, One thing, by the way, people go, oh, he could just declare bankruptcy. He could declare bankruptcy, but that does not get rid of this kind of debt. 
you cannot discharge a, a, a judgment from a court case if it involves an intentional tort. Defamation is an intent. It's not negligence. It's intentional. So theoretically, it can't make. But like, you know, I don't think Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss, I, I'm, I'm playing a little bit of amateur psychologist here. I don't think they're in this to get rich. Mm -hmm. I think they're in this to make a stand for themselves and to make a point. And, and I think they will do that with this verdict. I was going to ask you about that. What will be the ultimate lesson to be learned here? Um, not so much for Rudy. Yeah. Right. Um, I was going to say, Rudy is incapable of learning a lesson, but yeah. But for um, others to, to who... To the public? Yeah, yeah. Well, to the public, but also to others who play the defamation game. I think the lesson is we we as Americans have very broad First Amendment rights, and we can criticize each other, and we can you know, uh, uh, have spirited debate. But there is a line where you cannot tell a knowing falsehood. You cannot intentionally lie about somebody in a way that damages them. That's sort of the legal, you know, lesson here. But the bigger lesson is there are consequences to destructive lies. Um, it, it's not a crime to defame someone, but you can be hit uh, in a very serious way. And you can't just, you know, Rudy has gotten away with lying for so long and he's harmed so many people, I think these two uh, women more than anyone else, but he's harmed so many people with his lies and he sort of still continues to almost chuckle about it and be arrogant and defiant about it. And, you know, this should be a humbling moment. It won't be because he's Rudy Giuliani, but I think the lesson is that, that lies do have real consequences. Mm -hmm. My last question, any thoughts on what's happening in Texas with the abortion legal wranglings there? Yeah, um, when the um, when the decision when the Dobbs decision came down, I think we I certainly I wrote a column about. Um, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of different concerns, but one of them was: Are we going to have chaos in the legal system? Are we going to have some states that outlaw abortion, others that don't? Are we going to have states that try to outlaw people leaving the state? Are we going to have conflicts there? A lot of that has not come to pass. Some of it has, but this is a real concern. What's happening in Texas? This is sort of one of those dystopian scenarios come to life where you have this woman who wants to get this abortion and she has to go she she decides that it's necessary i think probably appropriately because it's, it's illegal in texas even though she wants an abortion and her doctor says it's medically necessary she goes to a court who gives her permission i mean just the notion of someone going to court seeking permission mm -hmm. is is i in my personal view is is disturbing and then the Texas Supreme Court gets involved and says, no, you can't. And then she just leaves the state, which I, is what I would have advised if it was mm -hmm. a, a client or relative of mine, I would have advised her to do. But just the notion of judges, courts getting involved in this decision and overriding what the patient, the woman wants, and the doctor mm -hmm. recommends is, um, is real cause for concern. And like I said, I, I guess I'm pleased that some of the chaotic scenarios that we worried about in the immediate aftermath of Dobbs have not come to pass. And part of that is, by the way, is because the politics of it aren't working for, for Republicans. I mean, several states, Ohio, several other red and red-leaning states have passed laws by, you know, by referendums that, that have reinforced abortion rights or, or rejected, like I think people have been surprised, rejected efforts to, uh, to reduce abortion rights. So some of those scenarios have not come to pass, but but this is one that that I did find really disturbing, and um, you know I I don't have a good answer as to how to prevent it from happening again. But it's interesting. I mean, Andy, you know, you're on more a little more on the political side. I mean, the polit I think it's now becoming generally accepted that the politics around this are really worrisome for Republicans. There's a real backlash. Here we are, two years later, 
from Dobbs and there's still a backlash. And you couldn't even see Trump inching away from it. You know, he used to say, I'm the one who brought you three just now. He's like, oh, I don't know. He criticized DeSantis for being, you know, for a six week ban. So um, it's it's interesting to watch the politics of this evolve. I mean, they're doubling and tripling down on this issue, which is yeah. is shocking given what we've seen the last couple of years in terms of what it's meant to them at the polls. Ellie, it's always great to have you on. Thanks uh, for doing it. And uh, come come back again soon. Great to talk to you. See you soon. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Oh,